As always, my extremely innocuous question to begin as we look at 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, did anything stand out in the reading? Did you get any new insight? Did anything bother you? Or did you come with sort of questions from the reading? The majority of the kings seem to be rather weak in terms of their to the covenant. Very fair. In fact, there seem to be only like two or three decent ones, if yeah. you don't mind me saying. And even they didn't seem really paragons of virtue. Right. Yeah. And it just kept going, 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 and it kept repeating. Yes. And it still is. Somewhere. Oh, yeah. Maybe we can review that. So the two kings that stand down as being decent, Hezekiah, mm-hmm. although when God says your, you know, things are going to go bad and uh, I'll destroy this for your grandchildren, Hezekiah says, at least I don't have to see it. <laughs> That's interesting, right? And then Josiah, who does this really big thing and makes one mistake and is immediately killed. Solomon doesn't come out great, really. You know, we, we tend to pass on in Sunday school, he's this great king, He's really quite awful. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> and, and we got to read at the very beginning what kings will do. They will take your children from you and make them their servants and, and, their, and their soldiers. They will tax you to death. And the people say, great, let's have that. <laughs> yeah. Because all of a sudden they want kings. And then their wives are down the tube. Yeah. And they have generational curses. Yes, it seems. It sure does. It sure does. It's it's really kind of hard-pressed, as you say, to find any king that is both strong, effective, and righteous at the same time. Well, I think it's very fair, and, and maybe if you didn't mind me putting my, you know, exposing my thoughts here a little bit, I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the president gets a lot of attention nowadays, fair, although, you know, uh, we kind of like to cover up things in our past that we didn't like, like that. Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner and essentially, I mean, I don't know if you want to use the word rape, but um, essentially raped his slaves. And John F. Kennedy was really quite a philanderer. We like to cover that up and almost push the world to nuclear winter with the Bay of Pigs, right? We just conveniently say that was a lapse in judgment. You you, you know, so um, hard to say... say. (laughs) The person we now like to talk about is necessarily worse than who we've had in the past, even if more public uh, with speech. And, and this is one of these things I think that we forget is our presidents don't tend to be paragons of virtue either. So is it just because absolute power corrupts absolutely? Uh, I think we're still called to honor those whom God has chosen without judging 
that they are not worthy of his choice. It's, this is really tough, and what it means to be chosen by God is, I think, always up for redefinition, right? Does God choose? We got to read this last week. I didn't pick you because you were good. I didn't pick you because your parents were good. I picked you because everyone else was worse. I mean, that was the message we got. And worse, really, in the sense that maybe no one else listened. Maybe we're the chosen people are the ones who listen, which could be anybody. It just, it just always makes me think of Teddy when he says, couldn't you have chosen somebody else when you see the things that happen to God's people? That's the first prophet. Moses says, I wish you'd ask somebody different. <laughs> I don't want to do this. It's really interesting that over and over, in fact, almost every, since we're doing prophets, Almost every prophet says, no thank you, <laughs> no thanks, I don't want to do that. And they can't seem to get away from it for, for one reason or another. It's a great theme, though, that you've, you've landed upon. Anything else stand out or any questions you want to chase down? Again, it was a marathon read this week. I don't, I don't understand how, I don't understand why they chose to turn to Baal and the other gods. Things were going okay and then all of a sudden they, they, they brought all these other things in. I don't quite understand why. And the other thing is, I didn't realize that there were so many prophets. Uh, yeah. 400 profits. Uh, yep. Wow, that's a lot. Good. So let's see if we can talk about those in turn. The first one is why would they turn to other gods? And to be honest with you, we often think that these were monotheistic people from the get go, and um, that is not a good assumption. I, I, I want you to know most scholars, and even a careful read of the text says, uh, People really weren't monotheists until after 540. Uh, this idea that God is the only God, period, we don't really see until uh, Isaiah beginning in chapter 40, which most scholars date after that. So, so what do we have before that? Um, most scholars like to use this word Genotheism instead of monotheism, which is that there are many gods, but we're only going to worship one. Can I ask a question? Please. When, is, when was uh, Zoroastrianism? Oh, it's much older than much Judaism. Older. Was, much older than this. Was that not a uh, monotheistic religion? Am I mistaken? It, it's more monotheistic. Now, what people would tell you is that Judaism is the first extreme monotheism. The thing about Zoroastrianism that's a little bit hard, if you know Zoroastrianism, it actually was sort of one of the dominant religions. Alexander the Great essentially wiped it out, but the Persian Empire was Zoroastrian. Zoroaster or Zarathustra seems to have been a Hindu, actually, who, who sort of... Um, had this epiphany that instead of there being 330 million expressions of one God, he kind of went to the oneness. 
Um, it depends how, how you read Zoroaster, though. A lot of folks seem to read him as a dualist. It's good versus evil. Although, essentially, uh, it, that's only the appearance of things. Evil's going to lose and good's going to win. But it's, you know, it always starts to be interesting. Now, I would tell you, like in Christianity, we're monotheistic, except we believe in a trinity, so there's three. And then the way most Christians behave, quite honestly, is that the devil is also some kind of deity. That's how most people function. They don't say that, but the devil has a whole lot of power in most Christian expressions. Now, that's ludicrous. I want you to know. It's ludicrous philosophically and biblically, but most Christians behave as though the devil has a whole lot of power and is fighting against God for your soul. Now, now, really, if we're monotheistic, that's all poppycock. Because the devil is a created being that has no power whatsoever. I mean, it has no power compared to God, right? I mean, but we didn't, most Christian folk don't behave that way. So that becomes this really interesting thing. Like, if I started asking Catholic people what do Catholics believe about X, Y, and Z, I guarantee you they'll tell me very different things from what official church teaching is. So the question is. What's official and what's practiced and which one's more important anyway? And I think when we start talking about why are these other gods, what we don't know is the people who wrote these scriptures were the literate ones, the 5% or smaller. We don't know what the other 95% people believed or did. I don't know if that makes sense. Those are their old gods and that was comfort. It's tradition. And, and part of that, for what it's worth, is even in this a name for God right here that's used in the north, El is one of the gods of the Babylonian, I mean, of the Canaanite pantheon, and in Babylon as well. So did they decide that the God of Israel and El were like the same thing and roll it into the word? I mean, this is the kind of history of religion stuff we don't exactly know. But part of what we see is that common people really were attracted to particular practices that the authors are saying are no good, but they, they keep returning to them. So, so a couple of these things, without being super boring, hopefully. Um, the Canaanite people in general seem to be, they seem to think that God lived in the sky. And the way you worship sky gods is by going to high places on, on mountains, right? And the gods of the sky... There's a couple of gods live in the sky. Baal is the lord of the rain. And Baal is also the lord of fertility. And Baal is expressed in a bull. Like that's Baal's form. Uh, you can read a whole bunch of this literature about how Baal, the god, behaves. But essentially, you go to high places. Now, what's interesting is that Elijah seems to think God lives in the sky because... Elijah goes up onto Mount Carmel, right? And that's where you have the competition between gods of the sky. Is it Baal or is it God? Who controls the rain? God has a bow. I don't know if you've noticed this. God has a rain bow. And we think of that as a sweet thing. It's a bow. And lightning is the arrow. And God puts it down for Noah. Right? I'll put my bow down when it starts to really rain. I won't wipe it out with rain. But we think of it as like peace and love. It's a weapon. <laughs> it's God's howitzer that God lays down. And, and that's wrapped up in sort of this 
sort of history. Now, the Canaanite gods, they don't all have, they don't have wives. That's the wrong thing. They have um, probably what's best understood as consorts. And the, the chief consort of Baal, or El, it, it depends which one you, you make primary, is the goddess Asherah or Astarte. And what we found all over the place are these little clay figurines of big-breasted feminine figures, headless or no facial features, but these are like fertility statues, and they're all over the place. And the idea is you have this symbol of feminine fertility, you plant it in your crops, you put it under your bed at home, like these things are supposed to help make you fertile. And part of the thing that you see over and over again that we don't always get is prostitution and adultery. The um, my practice was you would go to the temple and there would be offerings of meat that you would offer to the gods so that you could feed them. You didn't see them eat it, but they ate the essence of the, of the food. And in exchange, you could, eat, you could eat the meat. They ate the life force, you fed the gods, you pleased them, they would give you rain or fertility, and you got to eat the physicality of it, right? So all meat is sacrificed, we don't do that now, but then everything was, whether you were Jewish or whether you were Canaanite. Then they have these particular women, and you can read about this in James Mitchell's book, The Source, it's really, really <coughs> quite good. Women that they've essentially called and enslaved from foreign cultures, or um, women who have no dowry to be married, so they're kind of donated to these Canaanite temples and they're made into prostitute is what we would say, but really they're priestesses. And the way the priestess functioned is privileged men would go and have sex in the temple with these priestesses to encourage the gods to have sex in heaven. Now, that isn't really prostitution, you have to understand, because they didn't keep the wages. They live at the temple. You have sex at the temple as an act of worship. But they're sex slaves. They're sex slaves in the temple, but that, and this is all what we would call it. And now, hopefully, you start to understand why it is that temple prostitution was hard to stamp out. Right? You weren't just paying a prostitute, it was you were worshiping God when you did this. Like you were helping the world when you went to the temple and had sex with a sacred prostitute. And we ask, why was that a draw? You know, why would they turn from the one God to that? I mean that's yeah, a pretty powerful Yeah, and the other thing rules. is you start to think and there's this this, it sounds deprecatory. It's called sympathetic magic, right? The idea is fertility on earth encourages fertility in the heavens, right? I mean, so, so that's part of the deal. We may, don't always realize this, but the Hebrew people weren't the only people who circumcised. Egyptians did it. Canaanites did it. Hebrews cut off more skin than, than the other cultures. Uh, but the sympathetic magic is when you prune a bush it is more fertile. So, in Canaanite culture, circumcision had the understanding that it's a fertility gesture. No, really, really. Now, you don't hear that nuance when you read the Bible. You hear this is a sign of the covenant. 
But when you think, why would people do that? Because we figured out, when you trim a bush, it, the branches grow back stronger. And if you don't trim the bush, it actually ends up being much weaker. And fertility was so key to survive. It was yes. everything. And curiously <coughs> enough, rain, I didn't want to roast you out, but rain was considered to be Baal's semen spilled on the ground. And they, they understood it spiritually that Baal is having sex with the earth, if that makes sense. Which would explain to you why you bury the goddess statue, but also what the Asherah pole is. The Asherah pole is just a big pole in the ground. It's, Freud would call it a phallic symbol. Yeah. To show that Baal is impregnating the ground so that your crops can grow. I mean, I, I know what I... It sounds like this is all primitive and these are silly people. Not at all, right? This is all actually... not scientifically incorrect with the idea, right, that rain, particularly in a culture that's arid, is essential for fertility. I mean, you live and die by whether or not it rains, and so they're doing everything they can to try to make that happen. And it's really pretty higher-level thinking, if you think about cognitive. It's, it's, yeah, we can always look at ancient practices and say they didn't get it, but, but you know, I mean, again, it's, it's interesting to think about how it is that you induce nature to behave a certain way that you need. And that's, that's part of what's going on here. What was the role for male prostitutes? <sighs> wow, I mean, that's like a new thing and doesn't seem to be, like, widely carried on. Um, and I haven't found a great answer for that. But male prostitutes, it seems like that's male-on-male -male behavior happening. Women didn't go to the temple as free people to have sex with male prostitutes. I don't think so. I think that's men on men. And the only thing I can really understand about, I mean, this is really hard. I hadn't really quite found the, the, the great article that explains that practice. Because um, in general, male on male behavior is uh, a sign of dominance. And so the only thought is that you go to one temple and do this to dominate the lesser gods, to show that in your body. I mean, I, I, that's, that's my hypothesis, because I didn't have a good scholarly article about that. Homosexuality, as we think about it, hardwired or you're formed or whatever, it just wasn't around. You simply weren't allowed to do that. Greek people did it with their slaves, but everybody was assumed to be straight, if that makes sense. So again, it's... It was a sign of either dominance or body worship, but but not like we would understand at orientation to today. Does that does that make sense? Uh, there's no really um, that behavior doesn't really exist among the Canaanite gods that I know of. No homosexual Canaanite gods. But again, sexuality is a sign of dominance. Uh, so when you read uh, Sodom and Gomorrah's story, it's not that these are just gay folks. What they're trying to do is show these people that they're on the bottom of the pecking order by gang raping them. I mean, that's, it's like, this is like prison sex. So I think to think about that in the temple is again showing other gods subjugate makes sense. You know, we read particular psalms that say, ascribe to the Lord all you gods with a small g. 
which again is like this mentality that there are other gods, they're just beneath God. Like there's a hierarchy in heaven with this God on top and some other ones underneath. Does that sort of make sense? In fact, when we're talking about there being edits in the text, this, this is a, um, a phrase that shows up sometimes as alternates, the sons of God. And often it gets translated as angels. But, but that isn't right. The translation is really clear. These are sons of God. Angels is a totally different word. So what's happened is that some people became uncomfortable with this idea that there's other like spiritual realities, and they were comfortable with that. So they turned sons of God in like demigods, right? They turned that into messengers. I'm not saying they were wrong. I'm not saying they were wrong. But originally there's like twelve sons of God in Jewish sort of folklore. The Satan is one of them. So that's part of what's going on. And then, you know, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but um, when, Je- when Hezekiah reforms the temple, there's like a snake on a pole in the temple, and Hezekiah finally burns that up. Well, Moses made that snake, right? And it's a weird story. I don't know if you know it. Um, the people walk through the valley, and all these snakes start biting them. And... Uh, Moses complains to God, and God says, well, make a snake on a pole, and when the people look at the snake, they won't die from the poison. The snakes will continue to bite them, but they, but they won't die. It's a super weird story because you can't make an image of anything. I mean, I don't know what we do with the story, except 600 years later, that snake is still around, and people have named it, which means they're worshiping it. I mean, it's, it's an idol, essentially, and, um, and it's in the temple as one of the sons of God. Because uh, it's good to know one other bit about talking about angels. There's two kinds of angels in the Hebrew Bible. There's cherubim and seraphim. And the seraphim are flying snakes, like snakes on a pole. Think about um, uh, the medical symbol, the two snakes. That's Asclepius, the Greek god. The snake has the healing power because it sheds its skin so it never dies. I mean, this is kind of like the mythology of the Canaanite culture. And seraphim are like snakes that fly that are always on fire. And and here's a seraph on a pole in the temple called Nehushtan. I hope this isn't off the topic, but snake first shows up in the story of Adam and Eve. So I don't know how it goes from there up to being a seraphim. Yeah, I mean, again, there's always this weirdness about snakes. I mean, I, I'm sure there are cultures where people are not weirded out by snakes. But <laughs> we've inherited this sort of weirdness because I guess they slither, and again, they shed their skin. So you can read in the story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, that Gilgamesh gets like the magical fruit that will give him more mortality, and of course, as all dumb people do, he doesn't eat it, he takes a nap. And while he's sleeping, a snake eats it, which is why the snake lives forever, because it sheds its skin instead of dying. I mean, people, they knew snakes died, but the, the shedding of the skin was this 
symbol of like regeneration and growth. And that's really old. That, that idea is really old. I mean, the Epic of Gilgamesh is from like 2000 BCE. It kind of reminds me of those videos you see of the capybaras being hypnotized by the uh, boa constrictor. They just sit there and watch it. But they're... Yeah, there's something strange about about. I mean, all animals have their own things, right? All animals have their own things. By the way, I'm not saying any of this stuff is real. What I'm saying is it completely permeated the culture yeah. around them. Like it, and and we don't actually know much about Egyptian religion. So you got to think these people are exposed to Egyptian. Egyptian religion is super weird, and and you know. I had a professor from Johns Hopkins that said, all that stuff you learned about how this means this and this means that, nobody actually knows anything about it. Uh, you know, Horus is, is Ra's son, he's an eagle, but he's also Ra's eye. So is he actually an independent being or is he like just Ra's eye? It's all strange stuff like that. So if the people were formed in Egypt and they come out, like they, they've got to be touched by these Egyptian conceptions, and then they come into Canaan where there's other conceptions. I mean, I think that's it. You could spend a whole lot of time on, on, on this stuff, which is, and it is interesting. It's interesting because it's like people at the time had this backstory that we've now completely lost. Like flying snakes. You don't ever see those pictures in the Sistine Chapel. You see these like fat babies. But there were no fat babies because the cherubs, and we'll read about it in Ezekiel, they had four faces and they were covered with eyeballs. And that's not pretty. So, so, so we, we don't depict that. You know, We depict angels as beautiful human beings when, when this is a funny thing, angel just means messenger, so angels might all just be human beings in the Bible that God puts a word in. Cherubim means those scary monsters and seraphim means snakes and then there's messengers. As you said, there's a bunch of prophets, right? There's a bunch of prophets. Oh, oh, sorry. And why turn to Baal? Well, it could be that you prayed to God and it didn't rain. And now you're thinking, do I double down and keep praying to God or do I hedge my bets? So I think that's part of it, right? These people have been doing this a long time. They're still here. So maybe I can do both. The thing about polytheism is there's always room for another god. Always. There's no threat in polytheism. In fact, like in the earliest church, a lot of people just added God to the Greek pantheon because there's always room for one more. And that's part of what we get Paul saying, hey, uh, don't do temple prostitution with other gods. And that's the metaphor is about going to the temple to worship these other people. Uh, uh, why so many prophets? Well, I mentioned this to you last time, and I don't know if you want these words, but there's actually, and we noticed it this time, there's four different kinds of prophets. The classical one is the word Navi, from which we get Navim. But do you notice that Samuel is also called a seer? seer. Like he can he knows things. So 
the Navim are the ones who speak a word from God to the people. They're like God's satellite dish, right? Seers, on the other ones, are the ones that, like, are kind of clairvoyant. So you want to know where your donkeys are? Ask the seer. Because the seer can see beyond the human eye. This is a different <coughs> word. In, in Hebrew, it doesn't matter necessarily, but that's called the ro'eh. So, so Samuel is a navi, but he's also a ro'eh. And then there's another word that's sort of like, I mean, it gets, they all get translated the same thing, but really, it's like an ecstatic thing. You notice like Saul is in the company of the prophets, and he like takes his clothes off and rolls around on the ground. That's a hotzeh. Now, your Bible will call them all prophets, but they're different Hebrew words, and they appear to behave very differently. So, look, there's one, Elijah thinks he's the only prophet, the only Navi, but there's another 150 Roe who have never bent their knee to the Baals. You see, that's how there can be so many. Now, some of these people work for the king. Like, they're, they're paid to do this. And sometimes people aren't paid, and they say all those people are wrong. And then there's, like, this conflict. We've actually found, like, a ton of these little tiny writings in cuneiform by these guys that tell you how to interpret a sheep's liver. So in order to predict the future, you'd cut a sheep open and look at the liver, right? Those are one of these kinds of people in Hebrew. Right? means divination is what they practice. There's one other uh, kind of person, uh, and this, is, this one shows up too. We said in the text, there's a man of God. Well, that's what he's called. We don't get a name for him. There's a man of God. Yeah. So there's Navi, there's prophets, there's seers, there's ecstatic prophets, and then there's men of God. <laughs> Sometimes your Bible will call them all prophets, but, but again, they're, they're not all the same thing. And they all do slightly different stuff. We didn't read the story, but you know, Saul... The ecstatic guy goes to a witch who brings Samuel up from the grave. And, and the Bible doesn't call this a vision, like, seems to think this happened. That Samuel comes up out of the grave, and he's not happy about that, by the way. He's, he's very, very perturbed about this. So, so again, this is a mentality that is foreign to us, because while we understand some people read horoscopes, in general, we think that's entertainment. Mm -hmm. There are people who think that's very real, and we usually say, hey, you know, there's a lot of fruits in the basket, so that's, that's fine. But, but these people thought that there's prophets, and then there's holy rollers, and then there's people who can practice divination, and then there's these other men of God. I mean, they just, they had room for all of that. And part of that, he thinks, speaks... Say again. They still do. Well, and sometimes still, we do too. Alive. It's a really interesting thing, right? Because superstition still exists. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't necessarily worry about black cats and ladders and things like that, but, you know, in some ways, if, upon a close examination of our habits, I think we would probably find a little bit of superstition. Mm -hmm. 
and here's part of the interesting thing, right? When you're polytheistic, there's always room for one more. <laughs> so I think this, this speaks to people at this time had not made a clear monotheistic decision, and that's evidenced in even the kinds of prophets that they hold room for. Now, um, there was there was at least one instance of someone being raised from the dead. It happens twice. twice. And they're not, and this is a really good thing for us to say, um, just to pull out our fancy vocabulary, right? We often don't realize these words are very different. It's a great thing about English, we have 600,000 words, but sometimes we, we dumb our own language down. This happens a bunch of times in the Bible. Somebody dies and they come back to life, but they will die again. I mean, the widow's boys, they're going to die again. This is distinct because you die and you get your life back in such a way that you'll never die again. And this has only happened to one person in our scriptures. And curiously enough, when this happens, your wounds have to close, and in this one, you keep your wounds eternally. But he was he had been he had been dead for two or three days. So the Jewish belief is that your that your your spirit <laughs> leaves and hangs around for three days before it goes down to the grave. Which is why Lazarus is such a big deal. He's been dead three days before Jesus shows up, so he's already totally in the grave. If, if that makes sense. Also notice the sympathetic magic. I know that's a terrible phrase to use, but Elijah and Elisha stretch themselves out yeah. on the body. They don't say, like, get up. They, like, and they breathe into it. And they put their eyeballs on top of the eyeballs as if they have enough life force in them to kind of impart back into the body. It's very, in some ways you could say like it's weird, but in some ways, again, it kind of breathing. makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, if he's breathing in, it's resuscitation. Like yeah, it's like CPR. But now these guys have been dead a long time, but, you oh, know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's that, it is part of that symbol, breathe my breath. Yes. Yeah. Is that connected to Jewish people have to be uh, buried without Within 24 hours. Yeah. And they can't go to the morgue ever. In the hospital, yeah. They're not uh, filled up with. Nope. So, yeah, they definitely wouldn't be. Uh, wouldn't be. They might not be dead. <laughs> they verified today that you are dead. And, and, and how old that twenty-four hour practice is, I can't tell you. You know, it's sort of like you've heard you're Jewish through your mother, right? That's only a thousand years old. I used to know why that changed, but Judaism is clearly patriarchal because we talk about the patriarchs, not the matriarchs. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it isn't Mary's genealogy, you hear, it's Joseph's, which is funny, right? Because they're not related. <laughs> Uh, because 
of all, of all the different peoples that had come together during that time, when they came to try to be Jewish again, they had to decide who was really a Jew or not. And uh, was that when it came to the female? No, it's, it's, it's way newer than that, because Ezra is in around 540, but the matrilineal comes, happens since we've entered the CE, the common era. But the woman I was talking about, it said that generally when the, um, oh, I forgot what the, the rule was, is of the Jewish people, but anyway, that they usually try to put enough wiggle room in a lot of their pronunciation so that you could kind of it's something we didn't realize what Jewish people are great about doing is disagreeing about everything and then coming back so they have this agreement and they leave and they come back Christian people have a disagreement and they never want to talk again so so it's a really interesting thing is that they come together in order to disagree it's kind of a great thing that we've lost. Um, okay, one other thing that's really important, you said, I told you the Canaanites in the area of uh, Palestine today worship the sky god, but if you were to go on the other side of the Jordan to like, let's say, Moab and Ammonites, right, they worship earth gods, and to worship the earth god, you don't go up, you go down. You get closer to the earth, so you go to the relative minimum, not to the maximum, and you may not have noticed this, but um, the earth gods are called like Chemosh or Milcom. In fact, David gets the crown of Milcom. We're not sure if he wears it. It's a talent of gold. But you see a lot of the um, kings, Manasseh particularly, he's like the worst king ever. He worships Milcom by passing his son through the fire. And, and what that means is he burns up his firstborn son. Like, and you get and understand the sympathetic magic we're going to have a deal the gods and I if I give my most valuable thing up then to that god and convert it completely so that it's gone then that god owes me something very valuable I don't know if you caught it but Jericho is built when Jericho is rebuilt under King Ahab the builder buries his firstborn son in the cornerstone. This is that divine transaction. Now, we usually do something little. I know you think about this as kids. God, help me study for this test and I'll become a nun when I grow up. I mean, this is the kind of like bargaining with God that we do. So, so we can say it's weird, but we do it. I mean, we still think about a transactional relationship with God. So these people actually just took that real serious, right? So seriously. Again, your most valuable thing is your firstborn son because that's your heir and, and, and your possession. And that's key motion Milcom. By the way, um, if you've been to Jerusalem, the low point outside Jerusalem, it's there on that map here, you see the temple up high there? That's the relative high point. That's Mount Moriah. Come down to the, the bottom right there. You'll see it right here. This is the valley of, uh, it's called Gehenom. In Greek, that's the word Gehenna, which maybe you've heard, which is where we get the word hell from. 
that's the place where people worshipped Chemosh and Milcom and burned up their firstborn children. So there's this assertion that hell is where you burn your child to appease God. It's an interesting definition of hell, isn't it? (laughs) It's not where you're tortured with ironic punishments. It's where, in order to appease God, you enter transactions to the loss of other folk. He never asked that, really. Nope. Was that thing with Moses, or was you know, where you take your Moses? Abraham. Abraham, yeah. Well, A lot of folks read that and say, God's trying to see if Abraham will do what all the people around him are doing to their own gods. So it's a test, but you've got to think about this, too. Like, um, There's a lot of different ways to think about that story. Uh, if God knows everything, why does God need to test people? Well, maybe God's doing it for Abraham's sake. Or maybe the ancient Hebrew people didn't think God knew everything. Which is probably likely, by the way. Omniscience is like a Greek idea. It's philosophical. It's, it's not, you know, it, I hope you hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying God's not omniscient. I'm saying our relationship with God over the last 6,000 years has certainly changed the way we understand. I'm not saying God's changed. I'm saying we've changed. Our thinking has changed. Absolutely our thinking has changed. There's another way to hear the story, though, which is, and, 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 and I, I know this isn't the way it's written, but what if Abraham thought, you know, I want to give God my best thing, so this is what I'm going to do. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation. Does God lead us into temptation actively, or do we sometimes follow our own false gods into doing things to serve God that God never wanted to begin with? So, so I don't know. I think this is a great thing is, there's not like one interpretation has to be right, although some can be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, like, I think if we heard the Abraham story and said, God wants this kind of blind faith, I, I'm worried that's not a good interpretation. You know? Actually, the rabbis take Abraham to task for not saying no to God. Yeah. They say, look, he argued for Sodom and Gomorrah, people he never even met. He didn't argue with his own son. What a loser. (laughs) I mean, that's a strong rabbinic read. The reason I say that is because we weren't allowed to say stuff like that in Sunday school when I grew up. What we learned is you do whatever God tells you, even if it's this, but that's just terrifying, isn't it? We didn't ever, and what we heard is, oh, well, God would never ask you to do that. But wait, in the story, God asked him to do that. So what's interesting is when you grow up Jewish, you grew up hearing that Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and Rabbi Akiba says this, and they disagreed, and then there's three other disagreements. So, so you get to hear competing ways to hear the story, and, and then you kind of have to choose your own adventure. Which would suggest that... You should develop discernment. Well, it's interesting to think about. If I told that story in chapel today and I said, what do you think Abraham should do? I guarantee you, every one of our kids would say, not do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with them. Don't you? 
not do it. Now, how you not do it becomes the interesting question. <laughs> That's why I think this is so valuable to read. When we normalize the story, we actually aren't doing what our Jewish ancestors did with it anyway. When we read the story as a conversation starter and as a question, what adventure do you choose? <laughs> We're actually doing a little bit more of what our Jewish brothers and sisters continue to do with the story. And, and I hope you're seeing already a little bit, and I, I, I'm showing my cards here, that um, Bible doesn't mean book. It means books, plural. And in some ways, what we get is not a monologue when we read Scripture. We get a conversation. Wasn't there a, a, a sacrifice present, though, we, uh, we use so that, that's what I somehow learned, that God knew that he couldn't go through, and God had provided a ram shows up, right? It's caught in a thicket. Yeah. We also get this weird concept that sacrifice means you convert something into nothing, right? Something has to die, and that's not right. Sacrifice, sacrifice means to make something holy, and holy really means just to make something extraordinary. So, so think about this. If a firefighter goes into a burning building to pull somebody out, it's a sacrifice, right? Do they have to die for it to be a sacrifice? When you say, like, what a sacrifice. We say this about veterans. Even when they come home alive, what a sacrifice. You did something extraordinary, right? So think about when these people in general, when they offer animals or when they offer grain, they get to eat it. <laughs> they don't lose it all. What they're doing is putting it on God's table giving a life to God, and eating the meat. And that's a sacrifice. So, so sometimes we think sacrifice means this extreme thing, when honestly sacrifice could just mean saying hello to somebody in the morning that we'd rather not. I, I mean, really, it's, it's helpful to think about small things. God of the small things is really, really helpful. Does anybody ever think maybe it's the ram that's sacrificing? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, it, it would depend on your read. I mean, it, it, Jewish butchers realize every time you kill an animal, you're violating one of the ten words, but they call it a sacrifice, right? They give the life force back to God, but then you do get the meat. So, you know, Abraham and Isaac, they ate that ram. Nobody would burn up a whole ram. You, you just, we don't want to do that. They thanks. They give thanks yes. to, the to the animal. That's right. For their sacrifice. And then the kosher way of doing things, I presume, would be not so bad for the animal. They slit its throat with a samurai sword. I mean, it, it like so with the sharp, sharp sword. You don't want the, the body to be filled with uh, the adrenaline. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with farmers today, right? Farmers really understand that when the animal goes through distress, the meat tastes different. So most farmers who kill their own animals, they give it a feed bag and they shoot it. Instead of hanging it upside down and stunning it with a rivet gun, 
three or four times. You know, I mean, if this seems off topic, I don't think it is. That's what's great about Bible study is it connects to everything. I want to make sure you didn't miss something that happens, which is that the king of Israel is not made with a crown, but with anointing with oil. Samuel anoints the king with oil. This is actually not completely unique um, because the queen or king of England is also anointed with oil still today. Um, and again, that's like putting the crown on their head. I, I think that might be why we have the sacrament of unction. Yeah. So you can be anointed with oil, and I think it is this idea that in the moment of your need or your weakness, your, your grief, that uh, the community is going to treat you like royalty, and precisely in your neediest moment, you are royalty to God. I, th- I think that's where the oil comes from. I have not read a scholarly article about it, <laughs> but I think it's right. Uh, did you notice? Just I just want to call a couple. Did you notice out? Because um, we we read a whole lot. Um, there's something really interesting. Nathan is the prophet who accosts David. You're the man who did this, right? When you read Matthew's genealogy, Jesus comes from David, Solomon, Rehoboam. When you read Luke's genealogy, Jesus comes from David, Nathan, Rehoboam. <laughs> now you have to decide. Does Solomon have a nickname, Nathan? He clearly was also called Jebediah. We read that in the story. Is Luke saying Jesus comes from David physically or in the tradition he's king and counter-king? The prophet who calls kings to the carpet. He's, it's a choice. David fasts because God might change God's mind. Did you notice that? <laughs> so we usually think God will never change God's mind. We say stuff like that, but we pray and ask God to do stuff we want. So we actually kind of believe God changes God's mind. <laughs> Otherwise, most of the prayers we pray would be silly. I don't, I don't know if that's occurred to you. <laughs> but here it is, right in the story. Moses changes God's mind, right? God says, I'm going to kill all those people. And Moses says, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you, you really shouldn't do that. And God says, fine, have it your way. <laughs> we don't, I mean, we, we sometimes pray like that, although we would be very afraid to outwardly say we are praying like that. But we're really uncomfortable with God changing God's mind. Do you know what I mean? We are. But in the text, they're not that uncomfortable with it. I don't have a definitive answer. I just want to say these things are in the story that we, we bite our nails. I mean, again, I would, if I had said in the fifth grade, God can change God's mind, my Sunday school teacher would have said, no way. <laughs> and I'm telling your mom you said that. <laughs> I mean it. No, that would have happened. There are certainly a lot of human characteristics for God. And and by yeah, and by the time we get to where to where we are today, those are, for the for the most part they've all seems to gone away. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Although I would tell you in some of our practices not the case. I mean again, 
we sort of think like, oh, my brother's sick. God, heal my brother. God, heal my brother. And if we say it enough, then that'll make God do it. Which is very anthropomorphic, right? Which is like, we just get on God's nerves and God will do it just so we'll quit asking for it. The only way we can understand God is from our human reference. Yeah. Which makes it entirely right and dangerous sometimes, right? <laughs> I, this is what I, just, I think this is really, really fun. I hope it doesn't come across as like blasphemous or unorthodox. Like I just think it's really fun to expand our, our thinking about even our own practice and how it is we can enliven the words and things we use. It's, it's, it's all, I mean, the Bible's not embarrassed about any of this stuff, even though my Sunday school teacher was. So it's, so it's not something we need to be embarrassed about, is what I think I want to say. A um, couple of the things maybe that are interesting for you to, to make sure we highlight, because it's going to happen later. You know, some of the... Um, Ahab asks the prophets, the ones he's paying, should we fight? And they say yes. And one of them even makes horns and puts them on his head and says, you're going you're gonna to gore those people like a bull gores with iron horns, Right? And that's a little bit weird. Why wouldn't you just say, go fight? And it's because actions speak louder than words sometimes. right? And you're going to notice some prophetic behavior is that actions speak louder than words. Ezekiel does crazy stuff. Uh, Isaiah is going to do some actions. Like he's going to walk around naked for a whole year on the city wall. Um, if you didn't know that about Isaiah, you'll get to, we'll read it together. He walks around just stark naked on top of the city wall to show the people where they're going. They're going into captivity as slaves if they don't change. In this sense, right, this is like that man standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square. Sometimes actions speak louder than words, and we, we still get that. It's like Rosa Parks saying, it's not getting up. That's a much stronger reply than saying, I won't get up. You, you, you know, yeah. you just don't move. So, so this, this happens sometimes that people do um, performance art, <laughs> if, if that sounds like the right phrase. Did you notice that the Lord puts a lying spirit into all those prophets? Not the devil. The Lord. That's because... These folks think everything comes from God, period. Which, which means, <laughs> you, you, that's much harder from us, because what we say is all the good stuff's God and all the bad stuff's the devil, so it's nice and neat. But a couple of times in, in the scriptures, we see, uh, like, Saul is tormented by an evil spirit from the Lord. And we have to decide what's that mean. God allows it to happen. God causes it to happen. In some ways, it's really interesting to think about, and this is really hard for us, because a lot of times we say things are evil or bad because they're inconvenient for us, right? So if somebody has Alzheimer's, it's like this terrible thing. But the scriptures are really clear that God made the potential for Alzheimer's. Everything that's made, created, comes out of God's essence or hands, including death. So we sometimes, I think, get all terrified about these things. Genesis isn't so terrified. 
genetic variation that didn't go well, that comes from God too. And so do viruses. They're really good at what they do, viruses. They're really good. It's just extremely inconvenient for us. It's a foreign way of thinking. You know, viruses are like evil because they hurt human beings. And so are hurricanes. But they, you know, they kind of help the earth not explode. You know, so we, this is this interesting way that's a little more holistic in thinking. That, again, but it's a stretch for us. Do you think that the world is evolving in a better direction from those days? Well, you know, interestingly, um, Ecclesiastes seems to think there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so, so maybe, although interestingly enough, right, in terms of like catastrophic wars, um, it's been a while. I don't know if things are... are you know, there's these two great words that Aristotle uses when he talks about um, things. There's the substance, there's the essence of things, and then there are the accidents. So the, the essence is like the chemical formula, and the accidents are like the, the outward expression of the chemical formula. Right? So, so interesting enough, when you hear in the Roman Catholic Church transubstantiation, still tastes like wine. The, the, the accidents don't change, but the chemical formula changes to blood. I mean, that's what it means. Um, so it's hard to know if uh, the form has changed or just the content has changed. Like the expression. You, you, you know, I mean, we have a lot of technology now. We relate to each other very differently because of things like phones and social media, and we have medicines we didn't have. and. Are human beings still, at the end of the day, animals? Are we above the animals? Like completely different? Like these are—I think these are really great questions. I, I don't—I don't. It depends on the day you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, we feel relatively safe sitting here yes. talking about these just awful things that happened to our ancestors. Yeah. I think that's right. And again, that's a luxury we've only had in this, in this country for like 100 years. Mm-hmm. That we had the time and, and the education to be able to read this ourselves. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we would have all been minor members of the gentry. You, you know? Did I miss any highlighting things? <laughs> no, the, what I should have done is when I'm reading about all these kings, is to chart them all out because I, because I began to get a little confused. Some study Bibles will do that for you. And actually, if you look for like Kings of Israel timeline, they'll, they'll give you one. Part of the thing that gets confusing is sometimes the story is about the kings in the north and then it'll switch to the kings in the south. And, and you didn't realize that switch happens because it's running these two in parallel, right? And so reminder that the, the north is Israel and there's 10 up there and the south is Judah, and there's one or two down there. Yeah, that's, that, that's what's getting me confused yes. sometimes. Absolutely. Because, because they were changing it, and I didn't, and I didn't realize it until, until I already got into it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, 
but he was not the same country. Can I say something which is way off the topic? And I do. No, don't apologize. This comes from this document. Yeah. <coughs> which is a, a, an out of print book that is an ancestral history. And, uh, and, and it says, you know, King Jedediah. That's Solomon. Put out. Mm -hmm. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry, that's the not last king, His sons murdered in front of him, his eyes put out, and then it stops. But this history says that he, two daughters survived. Uh, I'll read this. <clears throat> the second daughter of King Jedediah of Judah, escaping the Babylonian invasion from Judea by sea, was named Scotia. History relates she remarried one Baruch settled in what is now Belgium, while her younger daughter, Tia Tefi, the tender twig, came to Ireland in flight, married King Harriman, also called something I can't pronounce, Harriman, and was buried at Tara. Now, this is the history of the, in the British Isles. Yeah. So it's interesting. Because it doesn't say anything no. about this. But they're women. They're women. And only rarely, like Job's new daughters, they all have names. But in general, you don't, you don't get that. And this kind of thing that you read is the kind of thing that was the most popular kind of story in the Middle Ages. There's a whole compilation of it called The Golden Legend. And it's, um, sure, it's, it's, it, these kinds of stories are all over the place. When I was in Georgia, Georgian churches are depicted with icons of these sorts of stories. In case you're wondering, the Book of Mormon tells you where the Native Americans came from. The Native Americans are the lost ten tribes of Israel. <laughs> so you've ever wondered where they went? They came here. <laughs> now, we can sort of laugh at that, but that's kind of what this is. <laughs> do, 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 you know what I mean? It's filling in gaps. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun. I think, I mean, it's fun. And what's interesting enough is a lot of art is informed by it, and unless you're, from, unless you're familiar, you, you, you don't even realize what you're looking at. I, I'll show you the Georgian icon with this story, uh, when it arrives, it's in the mail to me now. <laughs> it, it's really similar. Somebody in the hospital told me a story about the Native Americans now. I, I thought it was, I, I had no idea that it had any credence anywhere. No, it doesn't have any credence at all, but it's in the Book of Mormon. I mean, it's complete crazy because, well, I shouldn't say that. Scientifically, it is, it's not in accord with science as we understand it, which is that there was this land bridge, right? And the first hominids made their way over it. Uh, I suppose you could say that's a story like this one. <laughs> what do we choose to believe, right? I want to make sure we answer these last questions together because I hope you found these really interesting, particularly... What are warning signs that a church is losing or has lost biblical memory that gives its identity and purpose? Yeah. What are warning signs a church is losing identity and purpose, if you prefer it that way? I wondered if you had any thoughts to that question. I think less people are attending church uh, shows that people are losing a little of their faith. I find a lot of young college students lose their faith when they start getting into 
natural, well, into the teachings that they have in college, uh, they start questioning more. And, because, well, a lot of the college people I associated with were Roman Catholic. And uh, they weren't even allowed to read the Bible when I was young because that was for the priest, not for mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden they're opened up to all these different religions and they start to question and they start to fall away. Yeah. And I think that the money problems to keep a church surviving, they have to have money. And in some of these areas, people don't have any money. Of course, they give what they can, but things change. And then some people, some of these churches, they don't like their priests. You know, they want the priest that will agree with them, not the one that will go in there and start. We had a priest we called, it was his gotcha servant. Because you could actually see people kind of cringing. Uh, I loved him. I thought he was great. But a lot of people didn't like him. Mm. And the young priests that came in with their sandals and, you know, they didn't like that. They mm. didn't like them. You know, they just, they actually had them removed. So when you start doing that, where the people are in such control, the young people fall away. Mm. Because things don't make sense to them anymore. You know, too many rules. So I guess a good question I have is, people not attending church, is that, a, is that the core condition or is that a symptom? That churches are disappoint that are not giving what they're supposed to give. Mm. Do, do do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, well, we always laugh because my husband was Roman Catholic and became Roman Catholic. I was engaged to another guy, but I used to tease him about the Ten Commandments. I said, you know, your Ten Commandments are not the same as mine. <laughs> and oh yeah, they are. And I said, well, then how can you? How can everybody sell so many idols? The statues to the Virgin Mary, the yeah. statues to Joseph, the statue of this. I said, those are idols. There's nothing in the Ten Commandments about the idols. And when he started reading, that's when he realized, he said, I've been lied to all these years. And when we joined this church, <laughs> We asked the priest, you know, what's the difference between Episcopalian and Roman Catholic? And he said, Episcopalians are Roman Catholic without the guilt. You know, <laughs> and you don't have to pay to be forgiven. You don't have to mm. pay to do this and that. Yeah, but that makes a lot of sense because a lot of this is Roman Catholic teachings, but Without the guilt, you know. <laughs> mm. well, 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 I think church was founded by Henry VIII. Huh? Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. Good Roman Catholic, Henry VIII. Yeah, yeah, but before he changed it, so we could have his other wife and 
get rid of this one, get a divorce. And, you know. Well, I think the other thing, um, the uh, evolution of the prosperity. If you, <coughs> the more you give, the, you know, the more you get. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I think when you start to try to go tit for tat with God, that's where the church begins to try to, try to, 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 to put its message in a tit for tat thing. That's when it begins to go wrong. Well, didn't they weren't real, they were doing that way back when then? Hmm. Tip for tap. Uh, that's we just read like yeah, yeah. four it's, books it's of the all, Bible. Yeah, I did that all the time. Oh, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that. This, this, my, my thinking is this, um, that you give to God, or to the church, and the Spirit, you give what you can give. Yeah. Exchange, He can give you what you cannot get for yourself. And that's what I look at. Yeah. And I think when you well, I think, I'm not sure I can phrase it right, but what do you expect from God? I mean, what do you expect from the church? The church can't identify that. I think that becomes a problem because then you don't know why you're there. Mm. Other than you think, if I don't go, some, something's going to happen. That's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't have the answer to this, mind you, I don't. But I, but I will let you know um, that that Christianity is sort of decreasing everywhere in the world, except for places like Africa, and the kind of Christianity that's growing there is not Episcopal or Presbyterian. It's largely sort of Pentecostal, yeah. what we would call, you know, uh, Holy Roller types. <laughs> Um, and, and there is this interesting thing that came out, oh, it's 10 years now, um, that said uh, that people's correlation between church maps to words like, it's interesting, the biggest one was, and this is 10 years ago, um, uh, homosexist, that is like hates gay people, and then judgmental second, uh, and then hypocritical. Like those are the biggest three things. I used to teach at a Christian school, and one of the parents was very upset that I was teaching Bible to his son with some threads. He said that we should indoctrinate his 16-year-old son so that he had a firm faith. And curiously enough, what I noticed, and many of our faculty members noticed, is that our kids would leave Christian high school, and then they would sort of lose their Christian identity. And the solution was indoctrinate them more. And it was sort of this interesting thing. I actually came out on the other side. They'd never been allowed to ask any questions, and now that they could, they threw everything away. 
because there'd never been any room for things like doubt and curiosity and how it is that science might dovetail with scripture instead of contradict it. Um, the, the, these were interesting things, so there was like no flexibility. And, and when you talk about common purpose, you know, I'm positive church means something different to everybody in the room. And to me, the interesting thing about the Episcopal Church is, which I don't understand why it's not growing, is that yeah. there is room for everybody in the room. Yeah. Uh, because it doesn't have to mean the same thing to everybody. The idea is that regardless of what, how we differ, we have more in common then we have part. <laughs> it's an interesting sort of thing here, you know, uh, because we're not like the Catholic Church without guilt. We're a completely Protestant church in belief. We're Roman Catholic in liturgy, so we use a lot of the same words, but they all have different meanings. This <laughs> is sort of this really interesting thing, and as such, there's like room for everybody. And this is one of these questions that's vexing because of the way I grew up is, hey, times are changing, so hunker down on what we have in here, maybe. So don't let, don't let women be priests would be one of those things because they weren't allowed to be priests, except they were prophets, right? I mean, when Josiah finds that scroll, it's a prophet who's a woman and Huldah who tells him what to do. <laughs> So in some ways, we're preserving this by doing that. But, it, but it, you, you know, I think that's sort of the hard, the hard bit. And it seems like most people are just really looking for relevance. Um, and I see, I have a little different view of when kids grow up and leave the church and experiment and begin to think for themselves and explore other thinking. They, they deconstruct their faith on some level so that they can reconstruct it on a more solid basis and then that's when they they come back to the true essence of Christianity. That's my thinking and my experience. It'd be interesting. It'd be really interesting if the church embraced that instead of shunning people. Yes. You know. Yes. Sometimes I think when times in general are difficult and I, uh, I, this comes from a friend of mine who became Catholic, left the Episcopal Church and became Catholic because in her words, she had been through a lot. She needed something that gave her I think she needed somebody to tell her what she believed. Here are the rules. This makes sense. That's she needs it. It, it is. And it's not so much that she didn't want to think for herself, but she had been through a lot in her life and lost a child. And I think what she needed at that time was for somebody to say, this is it. This is the answer. And here are the rules. Yeah. It's interesting you said that because, um, you know, one of the, the, some of the growing parishes, again, shrinking everywhere, but there was a surge in these non-denominational churches, which really meant Southern Baptist without the name on it. And the Mormon church has grown 10% every year since it was founded. And in both of those, and no, no casting shade here, but everything happens for a reason, and everything is black and white. And, and I have to say that I would like everything to happen for a reason. I would like to know that everything is part of some master plan 
But I think that also introduces crisis to people when, say, their children have leukemia. Or, um, and, and I don't know, this is this interesting thing, that whether or not we, we, we want a community where, who will walk with us and grieve or a community that will tell us what everything means. And, and I, I, that might be part of what's going on. Um, you start to say, well, geez, the community that's just there with you empathically has no power over your life. And that's the definition of empathy, right? It's, it's not power over, it's power alongside, right? And, and, and I wonder if, that, if we don't ourselves idolize the wrong things. You know, we, we honestly would sometimes rather have magic and fate and black and white than we would human connection, which, you know, in my most sober moments of thinking, that's where the real magic is, is in human connection. Um, so I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't know the answer to this question. We scratch our heads, you know, in, in, in my job. I mean, look, it's a call and it's a job. I go to vestry and it's like a business meeting, but we have a mission, so we don't always make business decisions. And then I'm like the guy who serves communion. It's weird it, it, for, for all of us. It's not just weird for me. It's weird. And, uh, you know, like a long time ago, like even 10 years ago, we learned in seminary, don't be friends with parishioners because you're crossing boundaries. And some of it I get. And, and, and some of it I think is worth risking. And how much can you do it? Because at the end of the day, the reason we met is because of church. So that's our common thread. And what happens with that is weird. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not just talking about priestly life. I mean, I think church as a whole, as a, it's insight into the way the whole thing works. And I just, I think it's hard because if a priest makes a mistake, then they're a bad priest. But, but maybe they're just human beings. You know, and it is hard when somebody's made a decision you don't agree with about an administrative matter. It can be really hard to well receive communion from them because you think that they're wrong. And 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 this is sometimes like the way. I I wonder if we don't relate to religion in general. It's messy because we say God's in it, but it's also a human enterprise. And how you tease that out is really really hard. I'll tell you. I think the Episcopal way of structuring churches is flawed. I just think it's better than any other one I've been a part of. But I definitely see the limitations. You know, the bishop owns this property. I think that's weird. But it's better than what I grew up doing. I think it's weird that I'm tenured. You can't fire me. (laughs) The bishop can't either. If I'm a heretic, the bishop has to call an ecclesiastical court to try me. That's weird. But I'll tell you what, it beats the heck out of the locks being changed on the parsonage because you didn't like my sermon. I mean, like, you know, there's reasons for all of this this stuff. Job security is nice, and I've seen it burn other parishes where people used it to their advantage instead of used it to, like, be prophetic. And then how prophetic do you want to be? You're going to stand up in front of your people every week and talk about how they're doing it wrong, they're not going to come anymore. You, you, like, there's got to be some kind of like nexus, like in all relationships, you know. And, and um, I don't know. Maybe part of what I'm struggling with is like the church. We we often just split the hairs wrong, and we forget that Father doesn't know best. Because I, I don't. 
about everything, you know. Um, but I'm here to serve communion, and I hope we'll take it together even when we disagree. You know, I mean, I got to say, but I think that's tough because we don't, it, it's hard when there's chinks in hero's armor, you know, and I don't just mean that about clergy, I mean that about each other, and I mean that about the way we think about God and how we carry all of that cognitive dissonance. I, I just, I think it's, I think it's tough, and maybe, maybe that's the hardest bit about all this. Because you know so much, it would be hard to reconcile everything. And and yet I practice so little of what I know. I mean, this is the truth about us being parents. If I did, if I was the parent I knew to be, I'd be a much better parent. But like I know all this stuff, and in the moment I still say like, <laughs> take that, you know. I mean, and, and honestly, like I mean, again, I know stuff. I know how I'm supposed to do this and that, and I'm still like petty and vindictive, and you know, like my ego is wrapped up in all kinds of things. And here we are together. And it was the same thing back then. So many of the letters to the churches are dealing with relationships. And I wonder if part of the church going forward like, is to be honest about that and to struggle with that. Yes, you're my priest, and damn it, you really made me mad when you did that. And I'm still going to come to the Lord's table with you behind it. For now. You know, I mean, I just... I, I, I mean, I really mean that. I, I do. You know, I, I, I don't... It comes across that you care. And that makes a big difference. You're not just injured. Yeah. Not just going through the motions. I'm not just talking about me, mind you. Well, I mean, okay. This is a tough... I'm talking about you. Well, <laughs> but it doesn't come across to everybody. And I mean, I think that's... Again, I think that's how we struggle with, with this. Well, I mean, there can be priests that just really kind of act like maybe they just assume get done with it. I don't get that. Well, there are priests that are working for their retirement. Yeah. Our priests that we had in Florida, they fired him because the, they had a beautiful rectory, or, you know, where they thought his home. It was a beautiful, the church was in an area that kind of went downhill and got a lot of low-income you know, not quite what you want for your neighbor, but it was a beautiful house. Well, the priests had two grown children, and they also had property in the back that had classrooms and all. Well, they tore up this thing and made a living place for his son. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then the priest decided, well, you know, I don't have any equity on this house because I don't own it. And I'm going to be retiring in uh, eight years. So he bought a house. Well, you know, mm -hmm. well, the church had to pay his rent on, you know, on his house because they you know, said they would provide housing allowance. Yeah. Well, the only problem was they had to pay on that other house, too. Right. So he moved his daughter in there. And, um, because a friend of mine, who he made a mistake when he made her the treasurer, um, she started looking at all these expenses and took it to the vestry and said, look at the 
thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that our church is paying you. And they went to the bishop and they said, we're paying for both of his adult children to house them. And look at the money that's going out of the church funds to do all this. And pretty soon the bishop shows up and he is no longer being a priest. Now see, this is exactly what I mean, not talking about me. I mean, again, how messy this yeah. is. And, and, and I think that's part of the deal is how do we navigate something that will always be messy? And do we, ch and I'm just going to tell you, because I've been involved in churches that split, not as Episcopal, well, I have been involved in those too. Um, do we take our toys and go home? And at what point do we, do we have righteous indignation and we separate ourselves and stay together and work for reconciliation? And we find both things in the book here, you know? I mean, and I think that's the hard, it's the hardest thing about all of this, you know? And again, it's, whether it's your leader or in a parish or some kind of national church identity, and it just, it's just messy, you know? It's really messy. And um, I think sometimes we'd, we'd rather lie about the mess than call it messy and try to find grace in it. So I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't know. You've been super good. Thank you. Uh, I'm just, we're spinning our wheels, and we'll see you next week when we read Amos. Okay, what are we